to the Beginning Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Hawkins, and I'm super excited to be back here again this week. Fall is officially here. It is crisp outside. I've eaten more Apple products than I care to admit, and we are approaching three months of the Beginning Teacher Podcast, which is just totally crazy to me. I have learned so much from all of my guests and the guests that you guys haven't even heard from yet. I have had the opportunity to sit down with some amazing educational leaders and I cannot wait to share all of their stories and all of their amazing ideas. This week I'm sitting down with a friend of mine, JT Taylor. JT and I have a deep conversation about poverty and how poverty is not a disability and how we can support students who are experiencing poverty. I think that right now this is a really important topic because we are seeing students and families who may not have been experiencing poverty pre-pandemic experiencing some financial hardships during this time. And so it's important for us to listen to our students, create space for them to tell us, create space for them to tell us about themselves and what they're going through and know exactly who to reach out to when we need additional support for our kids. JT Taylor is an award-winning educator, researcher, author, and a highly sought after speaker. He has presented in K-12 schools, universities, conferences across the nation. He's gonna tell you a little bit about his journey as a teacher, um, but he's also gonna talk about his experience growing up as a student who was experiencing poverty. JT is the Chief Equity Officer of Purpose Pushers LLC, and he works with different organizations across the country, uh, specifically in the area of social emotional learning, culturally responsive practices, special education, and best instructional practices for reaching all learners. I really enjoyed getting to sit down and have a conversation about this topic with JT. He is so knowledgeable and he has so much to share. So with that being said, Find somewhere comfortable to sit, get your notebook because you're going to have a lot of notes to take, and find your beverage of choice because we're going to sit down for the next 30 minutes with JT Taylor. Hey guys, I just wanted to give a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Papa Murphy's of Raleigh. They are an amazing company who's doing so much for our local community as well as looking out for schools and educators during this time. Right now, if you are looking for a way to support a company that is supporting the community and you have no idea what's for dinner tonight, go ahead and check out Papa Murphy's. It's a great pizza. I pick it up for my husband all the time on the way home from work. We just put in the order on papamurphys.com and it's sitting right there on the way home. Pop it in the oven and I don't even have to think about it. Right now, they're doing their one-top weekends, which means that on Saturdays and Sundays, if you purchase any pizza regular price, you get a thin, large, one-topping pizza for free. So go to papamurphys.com and check out their Tail Bake promo. With me, I have JT Taylor. JT, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. How is this start to what we would consider the academic school year going for you? Well, you know, it's um, it's going pretty good for me, you know, not because I'm a consultant. I don't have a home school, so uh-huh. I get to kind of float around and work with different divisions and different schools. So it's been good trying to coach people through something that none of us have ever experienced, but that's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. 
I think we're all trying to balance on like two different rocks right now of uh, what we're familiar and comfortable with and what we want things to potentially be. And we're just trying to find our balance between all of that right now. Absolutely. I agree. So JT, you're a consultant now, but talk to me a little bit about how did you get into teaching and what were those beginning years like for you? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. You know, it's amazing because like most educators, I never desired to teach. Um, <laughs> you have some who, who grew up from, you know, their youth and they played with dolls of like my wife, that's how she was. And she kind of always wanted to be a teacher. But for me, it never crossed my mind ever. Um, even when I was in college, I actually triple majored in political science, history, and philosophy. Wow. Because I was trying to be like my favorite professor. Uh, that's what he did. And he was a constitutional lawyer. And so he persuaded me that I was intelligent enough to do it. So I said, mm -hmm. okay, well, let's, let's try it. And I was uh, on the track uh, to go to law school. I was a political science, you know, junkie. I loved everything politics. But what happened was I ended up transferring uh, from Christopher Newport University to Norfolk State University. And when I got there at Norfolk State, they had these certain basic foundational classes that they were forcing me to take. Mm. And one of them was like this English 101 type of course. And here I am a junior and I'm like, I'm not taking this course. So I'm trying to argue my way out of it. Well, lo and behold, I took this course and we had to read this book called The Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass. Mm. And um, at the end of that book, I remember closing the book and saying to myself, you've got to become a teacher. Wow. Um, and so I went to my advisors and I said, hey, I want to switch my major from political science to education. And they're like, absolutely not, because <laughs> you're, you're going to lose so many credits if you do that. But I was so convicted and compelled to do it. I said, it doesn't matter. I have to do this. And so I went and I became a teacher just like what that. What specifically about that book was it? Well, you know, so Frederick Douglass, he was born into slavery and um, we know him as a very intellectual um, American in history now, a scholar um, and an abolitionist, but it was his journey to education, you know, mm. to learning that education was the most liberating force known to man. And so he, in, in the book, he's explaining these stories of how he would be moved from this plantation to this plantation. And when he got to a plantation in Maryland, the husband who owned the plantation really didn't want Frederick to get an education, but mm -hmm. his wife, when, when the husband would leave, the wife would send Frederick to the store and give him a list and kind of teach him how to read a little bit. But on his journey to the store, he would meet these, these boys. Um, it was like uh, two or three uh, white boys, young boys, younger, much younger than him, but uh, he would talk to them and they would teach him things like, Hey, this is concrete and this is a fork and this is a knife. And so he would give them bread and they would teach him. And so one day when he was on his journey, uh, they had mentioned the word freedom. Um, and, and he said that he couldn't sleep for weeks after they defined what freedom was. He just had a very difficult time sleeping. Of, of course, along his journey, he became a scholar because uh, he learned how to read. And so after he uh, bought his own freedom, he went back to the plantations where he was kind of reared. And he began to teach those who were still in slavery how to read. And so he would write on the dirt, you know, and, and teach them words and, and vocabulary. And that really touched my heart because I felt that it was, it was somewhat metaphoric. Um, I look at where we are in terms of illiteracy and just 
you know, not having a passion for reading because reading is the gateway to help you, you know, grow your knowledge. And Absolutely. so that really inspired me. And I said, you know, I got to go be, become a teacher. I've got to teach some people how to read. And I was very passionate about that. And so even though I lost a lot of credits and lost a lot of money, I think I made the right decision. Absolutely. <laughs> of course you did. You go to your advisor, you say, I got to switch my major. They say you're crazy. <laughs> and you enter that classroom the first year what are you teaching what were you like as a beginning teacher oh my goodness I was a a resource teacher special education Mm -hmm. academic resource emotional disability in um, the most diverse school in my city Uh, the the school who served uh, the highest level or, or the most dense uh, population in terms of low socioeconomic status uh, students and and ironically it was the high school that I graduated from. wow uh, so I was right back with some of the teachers who taught me when I was a stubborn young man who was <laughs> aggressive and angry and getting into trouble and failing and so here I am I'm back and I and I, I opted to work with students who had emotional disabilities because my license is a K through 12 general curriculum so I could work with any student with a disability but they were like, hey, this is the most challenging. And that's where I was in my life. I'm like, give me the challenge. I want the challenge. <laughs> and so all of the administrators who, who were there uh, during that interview, they said, hey, you know, um, don't get burnt out doing this. You know, mm-hmm. switch to students with learning disabilities after a couple of years. But I fell in love with students who had emotional disabilities. And so I had them, you know, from their freshman year to their senior year. And most of them had me for one block, 90 minutes. And what I really loved about working as a special education teacher in uh, the ED setting was the fact that I created my curriculum. Mm. You know, I got to teach what I wanted to teach. And although uh, my students had various needs, and of course, I tried to prepare them for earth science and algebra one and geometry and biology and whatever courses they needed assistance with, I helped them with that. But um, that was after we had to get through the lesson that I created. Um, <laughs> and I really loved doing that. So as a first year teacher, I was someone who was very risky in a sense. I was willing to mm. take risks. I was willing to teach whatever. I was willing to really engage my kids in, in lessons that they probably would have been engaged in if in the, in the academic setting yeah. in college. Um, but they really, they rose to that expectation and, and they did very well. And I had no behavior problems. I literally wrote two referrals in 10 years. Wow. Um, and the subs will leave me notes and say, this was the best class. They didn't know that <laughs> my students were quote unquote students who needed behavioral plans because they, you know, they had some, some adverse, you know, issues. But yeah, as a first year teacher, I really thrived as, as a first year teacher, but I believe it was because my principal, when, when he hired me, he pulled me out of the, the interview meeting with everyone else. And he had told me, he said, hey, this is your job. Um, but he said, listen, as a first year teacher, I want you to know that you're probably not going to be a rock star in your first mm-hmm. year. He said, I was a horrible first year teacher. And this is the principal giving me this encouragement. So he made me feel like, okay, I can take risks. Because if if all first year teachers are not going to be considered rock stars, well, at least I can experiment and see how to get better at my craft. He gave you you that freedom of space and, and the freedom to make mistakes. Yes, 
Yes. And that's what you need in that first year, because, you know, you come in and you're already kind of anxious, like, oh, I don't mm -hmm. want to make a mistake. I don't want to do anything wrong. And I knew for me, not only did I have the curriculum side to deal with, I had the compliance side. Mm -hmm. So I had to make sure my IEPs were in compliance with, you know, with the law. I had to make sure that the general education teachers were implementing it and carrying out the accommodations and giving my students the, the best chance for them to be successful. So I had a lot on my plate as a first year teacher, but my administrators really did strengthen me, um, give me that agency and let me know that, hey, you're going to be a great teacher. It just may not happen this year, but um, just hang on. Absolutely. How did you get from beginning teacher to where you are now? Kind of that journey, because you do some phenomenal work and we'll dive a little bit deeper into that. But how did you get where you are right now? Again, my administrators, they saw something in me and they really wanted to cultivate it because I never had the privilege of co-teaching with the same teacher for uh, uh, more than a semester. Wow. Um, literally, I worked in world history uh, during the first semester. Then I would work in earth science during the second semester. Then the next year I would work in algebra one, the first semester. Then I would work in biology the second semester. So I asked him, I said, Hey, I've been developing some great camaraderie with some of these educators. Can I just go back and there? We've got this strategy. We've got this teamwork right. going on. We know who's going to introduce the lesson, who's going to teach, who's going to do the guided practice, who's going to pull out for small group. We're going to work this thing. Kids are going to thrive. And they were like, well, JT, we really want to make sure you're well-rounded. We want to make sure that as a resource teacher, you're going to be so skilled in the curriculum. You're going to know how to give every child what they need to be successful. Um, but I also took that as wherever it was needed in terms of behavior management or classroom management, that's where I was going to be plugged <laughs> in at. I knew that that's really what that meant, but I, but I, I cherished in it because my classroom management philosophy is relational teaching. And so mm. it was always critical to me to build relationships. And that's one thing that I learned from being a special education teacher is um, when I'm working in a co-taught setting, the normally the general education teacher is the one focused more so on curriculum, um, mm. where I'm focused on making sure each individual's child's needs are met. And so that gave me the ability to circulate the classroom and to make connections with kids and learn about every area of their life. And so that that's kind of how I, I stayed on that path um, doing the exact same thing um, in the co-taught setting building some tremendous relationships with co-teachers to the point that then um, I began to do co-teacher training within my my building um, and then you know after a couple of years I was nominated for teacher of the year in the building and um, that was amazing because when my principal came to my door to, you know, shock me and my family was, I was like, hey, what, what are you guys doing here? Like, why, why is everybody here? You know, they were like, hey, you're teacher of the year. So it was cool because it was full circle because I remember walking the halls as a student without a purpose, you know, mm. really struggling academically in this same school to become a teacher of the year in that, in that setting. And so it was amazing for my students because my students, I always share my story with my students because uh, they can relate to not, you know, focusing academically and not getting work done. But it was almost like a, a, a real inspirational story for my students. Yeah. Um, and many of them went on to do great things and go on to college and, and succeed against all odds. Because, yeah. of course, 
uh, most of the research shows us that students with disabilities struggle academically mm -hmm. and more specifically students who are identified as having an emotional disability but um, my students they really thrive they did well and so that's kind of the journey that I was on and after that literally after I won teacher of the year that year um, the very next year my API, Assistant Principal of Instruction, mm -hmm. at my, uh, I, I ended up winning Citywide Teacher of the Year. So at that banquet, um, she was approached and offered a position as the, as, as the principal of the middle school that was a feeder school towards the high school. And so she asked me if I would join her. Wow. And I did. I ended up leaving that year and becoming the Title I instructional coach at the middle school that I once <laughs> attended. So I ended up where I've only worked in the two schools that I've attended, which is amazing to me because it's, it's really been serving my community. Yeah. Um, the same community that I was raised in and the same, you know, I, I, some of the kids that I taught, I grew up with their fathers and uncles and mothers. And, you know, so it's been, it's been a cool journey for me. That's amazing. One of the things I think that you talked about, I think is so important. And I try to stress this to beginning teachers as much as possible, but I know when you start interviewing as a beginning teacher, it's very stressful. And a lot of times you want to take what first comes to you. Um, mm -hmm. But it is so important for you to shop around, at least as far as the administrators are concerned. If you're sitting in an interview and the school is nice and shiny and it has all the technology, but you don't have the same shared vision and goals as that administration team, it's not going to work out as well as it could if you have a vision and a why that is aligned to the goals of the school and the goals of the administration, it really takes off and you have unlimited potential at that point. Absolutely concur with that. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, that's the goal right there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we know, when it comes to curriculum, we're always focusing on alignment where there's nothing more magical or powerful that takes place than when a teacher and an administrator have the same shared vision because you know you're going to support each other because you you have the the same end in mind and really that's that's how I felt because they explained to me that um they they really just wanted me to build relationships with students learn them and 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 just help help them in the general education setting and so that was my goal i was an advocate for my students and my students knew it um but yeah it it, it was really because the administrators and i we had a shared vision we all knew that our demographics were some of the tough toughest demographics in the city right these, these are the neighborhoods that i grew up in and so they you know, you learn how to be aggressive in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just that the way you express yourself is not as refined. And so a lot of my students were like that. You know, they, my, my students who were served as emotional disability, they were brilliant. They just had to learn. It just had to be taught, you know, how to replace their behaviors and so on and so forth. And, I, and our administrator, uh, administrative team, they knew that, you know, students just need their fair chance. And so we had that same vision. I was in alignment. I, you know, I, I felt like I worked for some of the best administrators um, in the world. It, it is truly amazing how many doors just an admin team that you're aligned with can open up um, when you find that fit. And you might, you don't always find it in your first year. Some yeah. people like you do, and you get really lucky. And you know, for me, it, it took a few shops to find a team that I really aligned with and understood the importance of sharing that shared vision. Yeah, agree. So. JT, a lot of the work that you do centers around the idea that poverty is not a disability. So can you explain how you got into this work and the importance of it to you? 
Yeah. And so for me, I think um, it, I'm, I'm extremely passionate about students who inherit poverty, students who are underserved, underprivileged. Um, and it's because that's my life story. You know, I, I was once a homeless uh, student. Um, you know, my family, we lived in a homeless shelter. I went to kindergarten from a homeless shelter, my brother and myself. I know how tough it is to enter into the school and, you know, you may not have the, the, the clean clothes, the new clothes, yeah. the shiny shoes. I know how brutal kids can be, you know, to, to joke. And so, um, and I also am aware that a lot of times, um, unfortunately, when you look at data, it looks like poverty is a predictor of academic success. Um, and so I'm a huge proponent of dismantling that notion that if you are uh, poor, that you're somehow um, not intelligent or, you know, not, not prone to be successful. And so, of course, um, I, had, I went to all Title I schools growing up. Every school I attended was a Title I school. My high school could have qualified as a Title I high school. And so for me, when I got into the field of education, I knew without a doubt, I wanted to work in the Title I uh, setting, period. And so I went to my high school and I worked there and then I became a Title I instructional coach. And so I realized that when it comes to uh, addressing poverty as an issue, you really have to work to change mindsets. Mm -hmm. um, because not only are you really taxed with changing the mindsets of students, but you're also taxed with changing the mindsets of adults. Absolutely. And that's the hard work. Yep. You know, kids can learn. If you raise the expectations for kids, it doesn't matter what zip code they're coming from. Kids will achieve to the expectations that are Thank set you. for them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it's the educators sometimes that struggle uh, because of, of how they perceive people in general who, who inherit poverty. You may have stereotypes that suggest that uh, poor people are lazy or poor people uh, don't want to um, work hard. They don't want to succeed academically. And so you got to really reshape mindsets. And that was my job as a Title I instructional coach. I was responsible for coaching 32 teachers, um, 20 special education teachers and 12 science teachers. And I remember being in a PLC meeting um, and I, I didn't facilitate the meetings. I just, I was the instructional coach. So I kind of was the guide on the side to make sure that everything was aligned and we had the best research-based practices that we were going to employ. But of course, the same strategy that I use for students, I use for adults, which was building rapport, making sure that my staff who I served understood that I had your back, understood that I was going to do my part to make sure that you were well-equipped and ready um, to, uh, you know, address the challenges that faced us. Um, and so as I built rapport with my staff, I'll never forget one meeting. I was in a PLC with my sixth grade science team, and we were discussing uh, the data and why our students were not achieving to their potential. And of course, my expectations are through the roof. Yep. I don't care if the school had over 92% of students eligible for free or reduced lunch. I don't care. I know that these kids can achieve at the highest level. Why? Because I was these students. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, the kid in this situation. And so I'll never forget one of my, my teachers. And I know he only said this because trust was established and it was a safe space. So he felt free. I mean, he was honest. And he said, Mr. Taylor, 
He said, can I be honest with you? I said, please, let's, let's have an honest <laughs> conversation because that's where growth occurs. Yep. You know, nothing grows in a comfort zone. So let's talk. And he said, I just don't believe that these students can excel because education is a middle-class institution. Mm-hmm. And he was just like that. And, and, and I looked around the room and other teachers were nodding their heads in agreement. Like, yes, that's right. I agree. And I said, well, here's the thing. If you think that way, then these kids don't stand a chance. I said, if you believe that because they live in an impoverished situation, and because the educational system is a middle-class institution, because they are somewhat diametrically opposed, because they are opposites, and if you believe that, then that means you're going to always lower your expectations. That means you're never going to strive to get get our students to uh, excel academically because in your heart and in your mind, you do not think they can do it. And I explained to him, I said, you do know I attended this school as a student. He says, you did? I said, yes, sir. I said, I was a student who inherited poverty. I said, but let me help you understand how I was able to succeed and how I was able to make it and, and, and graduate and go to college and earn these degrees. I said, it's because I had teachers who believed in me mm-hmm. and they knew that I had the capabilities to succeed. And I said, these kids need those teachers today. So I'm asking all of you, can we be the teachers that, that the students need to, su- to succeed? And I mean, that was like a turning point in our PLC meetings because it was a true heart to heart a true honest conversation. It wasn't one of those side conversations that people have in a teacher's right. lounge right. when they, when the reality is some teachers feel that way. Mm-hmm. They feel that students who live in poverty cannot be successful and they, they see poverty as a disability. And so I knew then, you know, that was, that was year one as an instructional coach that I had won the teachers that I was coaching and they believed. And so from there, it's like, that was my mantra. I, I did training on poverty so that uh, the teachers could understand the characteristics of, of poverty in general, the different types of poverty and how it manifests differently. You have rural, urban poverty, poverty in the city, poverty, situational poverty. Yep. You know, you got generational poverty, so many different manifestations of poverty. And so you kind of have to understand it to really be effective at, you know, addressing the unique needs of students who are, are coming into the classroom from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds. And so that was my mantra. And so that, that phrase, poverty is not a disability, is something that I always wanted to champion because I didn't, want, I didn't want teachers to have pity on the students. I wanted the teachers to empower the students and believe in the students and, and to know that children didn't choose this. You know, no one chooses this, you know, it's just what you inherit. And so you still have to give them a chance. Well, and I've, I've been thinking a lot lately about implicit biases, and I, I've been really thinking about them as weights. And I feel like mm. the older we get, the heavier they get. And so it doesn't mean that you can't lift them. It's just going to take a little bit extra work. And That's so good. when we have kids, you know, our, it doesn't mean our kids don't have implicit biases, right? They start building them at a young age, but they're a lot easier to lift and they're a lot easier to change and have conversations about. But when you believed something and held this bias, 
um, for the vast majority of your life and you're looking in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and so on, those mm-hmm. weights get really heavy to, to move and change and those conversations become hard. They take a lot of prep work. And so I think this, the earlier we can have these conversations and the more often we have these conversations, the easier it gets to start pulling away at those biases that we all hold. I absolutely love that analogy. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I can see it. Someone really trying to bench press this heavyweight. Mm-hmm. But to your point, the more we talk about it, it's equivalent to doing reps. Absolutely. So it's like the more reps you get, <laughs> the more, the easier it is to lift these weights. But you got to do some reps. You just can't show up, sit down under the bench and think you're going to lift that weight. <laughs> no you got to put in the work ahead of time. put in the work. <laughs> oh, that's good. Love so that. one of the things you talk about is identifying poverty. So how can educators, especially beginning teachers, because there are some beginning teachers that will enter schools or have students that are experiencing poverty, and it's something that they maybe have never experienced before. So what are some things maybe they're looking for? How do you identify poverty within your classroom? No, that, that's, a, that's a great question because, see, the thing about poverty is it's not visible. You know, it's it's not like a student is wearing a sign around their neck that says, hey, I didn't eat, you know, any breakfast, lunch or dinner last night, you know, or yesterday. Uh, it's not like a student is coming in saying, hey, you know, these are the same blue jeans that I've worn all week, even though I've changed my shirt, you know. So when it comes to identifying poverty, it really starts with um, seeking to get to know your kids, mm. you know, because as you build relationships with students, what I, what I liken it to is invisible baggage. And so every child is coming to school with some invisible baggage. It's like, like you're going on a flight and you've got this luggage that you're carrying. You know, some, some students have a, a, a large luggage case, you know, and some have a smaller luggage case, but they're all carrying their own invisible baggage. And so here's the thing. If I don't trust you, I'll never unzip my luggage to show you what I'm carrying, you know? So the only way that you're going to ever be able to identify the level of poverty that's impacting students, you know, the level of trauma that they're bringing into the classroom, it's when they have developed enough trust with you that they can say, okay, look, let me show you what I've been dealing with. Yeah. You know, and, uh, we had, we, I mean, I, I have stories upon stories from coaching because I recall a student really giving teachers a difficult time. I mean, one particular student, of course, the whole, you know, it's 92% free or reduced lunch. So pretty much 100% of the students are coming from low socioeconomic status. They're all impacted by poverty. But this one particular student, he was smart, smart student. He had been giving his teachers a fit. And uh, they came to me, they said, Mr. Taylor, please help us. You know, we really want to reach this young man, but he's really not opening up and talking to us. And so I said, okay, he had been removed from the setting numerous times, getting in trouble. And so when I went to talk to him, I pulled him into my office and it was one-on-one and we just began to talk. And I said, hey, what do you like? What are you interested in? What do you do at home? What do you do outside of school? What do you, what do you enjoy? And uh, we began to talk and um, it, it was revealed to me that he had been sleeping on the floor, you know, at home. He didn't even have a bed. And so this is the child who was coming into the class and, and, and being uh, agitated. 
He was, he was irritated. He was annoyed. He was sleeping during class. He didn't want to be bothered. When you try to redirect him, he had an episode. He, you know, and, and this kid was not a student with a disability, emotional disability. The student was just a child impacted by poverty. Uh-huh. And so, again, the teachers didn't have a clue. And so I, once I revealed that to them, they were like, oh, my, I wish I had known. I wouldn't have tried to wake him up every time. I would have tried to, you know, get him some support to see how I could better serve him, but they just didn't know. And so I explained to them the exact same concept. I said, well, listen, children have invisible baggage. And the only way that they're going to reveal to you what they're carrying is if you take the time to build relationships with them. And you've got to be intentional about that rapport piece, especially when you are serving in a Title I setting or in a setting where students are impacted by uh, poverty. And so to, to identify, number one, te- new beginning teachers, you do have to do some research. Mm-hmm. You have to study this stuff, you know, um, and you have to figure out what are the best strategies to serve students who are impacted by poverty. You got to read some literature. You got to see, because there's research out there that, that's, that shows us what works and what has been tried, what doesn't work. And so you got to be committed to doing that work at home. Um, and then when you come into the, the school, you got to connect with kids so that they can share some of what they're carrying with you. And then that'll, that'll show you what you need to do to reach them. Yeah. The part you're talking about building a rapport with students is so important. And one of the things that I've been working a lot on this summer researching and trying to gain more information about is, you know, SEL and trauma-informed practices. And I think the thing that's really fascinating to me right now is that in at least in my experience, I can only speak for me, I feel like Twitter's coming around to this idea that students who may have outbursts or be agitated, that there might be something else going on underneath of that. What I think we haven't come around to in the conversations I don't think that we're having is that there's almost this uh, sense of perfectionism can also be a very big sign for our Mm. students who are trying to cope with something. And I think that those kids very often get overlooked um, because they are meeting all of our expectations. And so why do we need to dig in any further? And so I think that this conversation piece of you, you really just can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. And I, I know that's a worn out <laughs> phrase, but you've got to know your kids and, and give them the opportunity to open up. And if you have a kid that you feel like can't open up to you, you've got to allow, make that bridge in your school of someone that they can connect with because um, it's important that students have a safe space. Yeah, yeah. My philosophy is every child is carrying invisible baggage. Yep. It's just their luggage size differs. So we've got to make sure that we reduce the amount of students who feel anonymous. And that does require us to meet those social emotional needs. What are some of the ways that you have seen poverty play out and impact students, whether that be mentally, physically, emotionally? For me, I think I've seen it more so in mindset, mm-hmm. um, where a lot of students feel as if school isn't cut out for them. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they, they think that uh, being in a gifted and talented program or advanced coursework is not, is not for them because they haven't seen uh, a lot of people from their communities engage in that. Um, they haven't been exposed to a lot of different things. And, and that can hinder their ability or even desire to, to, to go to college because they may say, well, no one in my community went to college. Um, and I know that that was my mantra when I, I played sports. Mm-hmm. And really the only reason I went to college is because I was a phenomenal athlete. Um, but when my coach came to me at the end of my senior season, he said, hey, what school you want to go to? I said, coach, I'm not going to college. No one from my community goes to college. 
And so he was like, no, you're going to college. And so I think how I felt is how a lot of students feel who grew up in poverty because they may not have, they may be the first generation, you know, to yep. graduate from high school. They may be the first generation to, to, to go to college. And so to really get students that exposure that gives them the confidence and changes their own mindset, because a lot of times uh, kids just see themselves in a certain way and that's how they identify themselves. You know, they don't, they may not think that they are scholars. They may not think that they are straight A students. And um, a lot of times that's, that's how I have seen uh, poverty impact students, just mindset, uh, you know, and, and I think that for me, that's, that's how I, I identified as an athlete. I never identified as a, a student, I identified as an athlete. And people say, what do you want to do in life? Um, I want to play sports. Yeah. Uh, and so even the, the, I mean, the irony of my story is mind boggling because I graduated high school with a 2.1 GPA. Mm. And people say, how did you get a 2.1? I said, I was in the gym and I was literally destroying kids in past advanced sports. And the coach came out and said, hey, why aren't you playing? I had a 0.75 GPA at that time. I was a failing student. I had uh, I, what I call an E or F plus. <laughs> I didn't even have a 1.0. And so he said, listen, with, with your talent, you should be playing sports. And I said, well, what do I need to do to play? He said, you need a 2.0. And I ended up graduating with a 2.1. And so I tell that story because I learned from my own experience that students will only achieve to the expectations that are set for them. Mm. And so as long as we lower the bar for students because of what they inherit, because of the zip code that they live or the community in which they are reared in, if we lower the expectation, students will meet it. But if we elevate that expectation, students will also meet it. So um, for students, they struggle with mindset, but adults working with students who mm -hmm. inherit poverty, they struggle with mindset. So we've really got to recalibrate our mentalities in terms of how do we uh, teach students who are um, coming from impoverished backgrounds. Well, and that kind of segues into my next question. So you talk around the country about all of the phenomenal work that you do and you coach educators around the country. So when you talk to teachers and coach different educators, what is a big misconception about poverty that you watch people have? Um, and what would you tell them? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's really about hearing these success stories about individuals who have inherited poverty, because for, for most people, they, they have a bias that they're unaware of because they have only heard or learned about poverty and its impact through media. And so very rarely has someone had a conversation with someone like myself who inherited poverty, attended all Title I schools, matriculated through college and earned degrees and became a, you know, a, a homeowner and all of these different things. And so very rarely do people have these opportunities to talk to people who have experienced this. Mm -hmm. And so, when you don't have that exposure to real life conversations, you're left to your own devices in a sense. So now you're, you're left to um, just assume what is poverty, how it impacts people, and then you, you end up clinging to stereotypes. That's so important. And I, I think that goes for any, anything that we have, you know, biases or misconceptions about is it comes down to us just needing to sit down and have genuine conversations with other humans. Um, yes. And I, some, somewhere along the line, we forgot to do that. 
I think that's the greatest way we learn is from each other. Um, you can read from books all day, every day, and that's great, but we really get the most when we have genuine conversations with other humans. Agreed. JT, we like to end the show with five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. What is your before school routine? Oh, well, I, I, I stopped drinking coffee uh, this year, but it used to be coffee, mm -hmm. a good devotional, and a, a gratitude journal. 2020 is the year to give up coffee, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a mistake. <laughs> what is one word the students you work with would use to describe you? Motivator. Mm. What's your favorite school supply? Sticky notes. <laughs> favorite mantra or saying when things get tough? Today's a better day to be better than yesterday, so make it a great day. Mm. And what was one thing you wish someone told you as a beginning teacher? Ooh. Mm. Cherish every relationship with adults and students. Um, yeah, that if, if, if someone would have told me the value of relationships from day one, I, I probably would have learned a great deal more than I did in the beginning of my career. Um, because I was positioned around some amazing educators. Um, but again, I was moving from classroom to classroom, so I didn't soak up everything as yeah. I should have. Um, but yes, uh, you know, cherish the relationships. That's great. JT, what are you working on right now and how can people connect with you? Right now, I am, I have a, a, a academy. It is called Purpose Pushers Academy. It is my professional development platform. So I am extremely passionate about professional development. That's what I do. Um, you put me anywhere, give me a PowerPoint, a clicker, and I'm, I'm ready to go. And so um, <laughs> because of, uh, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic, I had really started creating this virtual platform for professional development so that teachers can customize a professional development plan for themselves. I started on it last year, but COVID really accelerated the process. So Purpose Pushes Academy is the number one thing I'm working on right now. I have six courses available, courses, awesome. you know, about poverty, courses about um, exclusionary discipline practices, courses about culturally relevant teaching, um, courses about coaching, instructional coaching. I mean, everything that I'm passionate about, I love to teach it to people. So um, that's what this uh, platform is, is about. And of course, people can find me on Twitter at Purpose Pushers, Instagram at Purpose Pushers, website PurposePushers.com, everything with a purpose. <laughs> there you go. JT, it was so nice to have you on. It was my pleasure, Jen. I, I love the work that you're doing, and um, I'm excited to see, you know, the great work that you're going to do in the future. Thank you very much. Wow, another great guest and another great conversation. I hope that you enjoyed listening to JT and learning from him as much as I did. I think the big takeaway that I have from this episode is that every single student and every single person for that matter is carrying invisible baggage. Some of us have really small invisible baggage and some of us have really big invisible baggage. As educators, we have to be willing to take the time and make the effort to create spaces where our students feel safe enough to show us that invisible baggage so that we can better support them. I hope that you have an amazing week. This podcast is going to drop on October 14th, which means October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be having our BTW podcast chat on Twitter. So join us at hashtag BTW podcast chat to answer questions specifically about this episode and debrief as a whole group. 
I hope that you have an amazing week. I hope that you take time for you, enjoy the fall weather, take a couple moments to just breathe in, breathe out, let it all go. I know that everything seems crazy right now, but you've got this and we're here to help. Remember to learn, grow, and connect together. Have an amazing week.